episode number 60, Robert Gardner. Welcome back to the Tuttle Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history and their craft. And I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz. And this time, I have an interview with the senior designer, Robert Gardner, from UBC in Vancouver. Well, we are closing in on the end. Only four more interviews to go from the West Coast in December of 2018. This time with senior designer and professor at UBC, Robert Gardner. We speak of his start in SoCal and his work on innovating in projection design and lighting in Vancouver. We also touch on the training of new designers in Canada and his thoughts on how theater production has changed since he started in the 1970s. You can see examples of his work as we talk about it in the show notes at thetitleblock.com. I hope that you are continuing to weather these tough times as theaters are shut down and we are in stasis, waiting to return to make art for a live audience. Please, if you can, consider giving to the Actors Fund of Canada at afchelps.org. And don't forget that our new limited series on the Title Blocks YouTube channel every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. This week, a terrific panel of sound designers from around Canada. Once again, I will not be charging the wonderful supporters of Patreon.com while we all pause, but I thank you again for all your past and future support. Now, here's my interview with designer Robert Gardner. From growing up in Sacramento, California, to making his way through Washington to Vancouver now, Robert Gardner has worked in as a set and lighting and video designer for many, many years, and he's stationed here at UBC, where he's been since 19, the mid-1980s. Uh, and he has graciously allowed me to join him here at the Frederick Wood Theater on the campus of UBC in Vancouver. Robert, welcome to the Tuttle Block. Thank you. Awesome. That's the smoothest that's ever gone, <laughs> that intro. Congratulations. So, thank you so much. I made it through. Um, so how did you get started in this crazy business? You were in Sacramento, and I understand you did a bunch of work before you got your undergrad in theater down at, uh, in California. I did. I um, I was born in Sacramento, which is quite a lot like Edmonton, uh, only a great deal hotter and no snow. Um, but I saw a show at the local university um, when I was nine or ten. My parents would take me to plays. I think just about everybody who gets into the theater side of the entertainment industry saw plays when they were somewhere between seven and twelve. Well, I saw one, and it um, it was beautiful, and it was inspiring, and it gave me the shivers, and I thought, oh, gee, that looks like a ton of fun to do. Um, so then what with one thing and another, I started in art school, uh, but decided that I wasn't going to be able to speak the language and explain what I wanted to do in a way that my teachers would understand. So I quit school and thought, well, I'll try this theater thing. And I got uh, tech production jobs. Um, and eventually I got a tech production job at a local college and um, built sets and worked IATSE calls. California, Sacramento is the state capital. So there's the California State Fair, which is great for 
IATSE calls because you set up scaffold and stick lights on them and stuff like that. Um, and I, I like to paint. I had been, a, I thought when I was a teenager I was going to be a, a painter. Um, and so, lo and behold, you know, particularly in the 1970s, people could paint sets. So I did some of that, and then, as often happens, when you paint a set, somebody else will ask you to design one. So I did a few of those. Um, and I would often do what people still do here in Vancouver, which is design it and build it and paint it. And, um, and then I also did a bit of acting. So a couple of times um, I would be acting on the thing as well. Um, uh, and finally, with a couple of children, decided this is not a stable enough income. I'm going to need to go back to college and get some more degrees, and that will be the magic key to um, getting a teaching gig. And so I did that, and I went to university at University of Washington, and from there came to Vancouver. Uh, and just to step back a little bit, what, what were your kind of influences when you were thinking about being a painter in the 19... This is in the 1970s, right? 1970s, 1960s. Okay. 1960s and 1970s. Well, influences about being a painter. Um, uh, Rembrandt. Um, there are some Californians. So many of the Impressionists. I was particularly fond of Monet, but I also... I kind of wanted to... I loved Monet, but I wanted to paint like Manet. Um, because even then, um, simple appealed to me. I liked simple. Um, I couldn't paint like either one of them, uh, so I also liked some of the romantic 19th century landscape painters. Um, there's a lot of that material in California museums because a lot of them were in California. Um, so, you know, Rembrandt for the light, um, Caravaggio for the light, although you don't really see, if you live in Sacramento, you don't see a lot of original Rembrandts. You mostly see reproductions in books. Um, but I did see a lot of um, Impressionist paintings, um, and that's light in a different way. So, you know, I like the haystacks, for instance. The haystacks were terrific. Um, yeah. And has that work influenced, I mean, obviously light like the Rembrandt and the Carvet, like the Dutch masters, and, and it's certainly Impressionism informs all of that Absolutely. kind of thinking, right, with lighting and, and uh, certainly with projection too. So that's still something that you sort of carry with. That's kind of it. Yeah. Simple and light. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's awesome. And um, um, tell me how you got to Van... First of all, there was a... Uh, you mentioned earlier um, mentors when you were first... Ah, starting out. Yeah. Well, yeah. So um, at the at the local university was a, a fellow named uh, Larry Shoemate, and uh, we would see shows that he had designed because he taught there and designed their shows. Um, and he, this I don't know, maybe nineteen sixty eight, sixty two, somewhere in there in the sixties. We saw a production of St. Joan, the Shaw St. Joan, that they had done. Um, and he, there was some moment, I think it was when, um, what's his name, the, the general is talking to Joan on the banks of the uh, Loire or the Seine or something, and he's trying to persuade her to behave herself. Um, 
And the button for the scene, I can't remember why, but the button for the scene was this beautiful backlight with steps. He did big sets uh, with big steps on them all the time. Um, and so I thought, oh, that's really cool. How do you do that? Um, so that was one. And then when I uh, went to the University of Washington um, in the early 80s, University of Washington is part of what used to be called the League of Professional Training Schools. So if you went there, you would get sent off to portfolio reviews um, and get, you know, barked at by Howard Bay and Ming Cho Lee and um, people, um, which was great. It was terrific to do that. And, you know, of course, Americans in, and even now, um, Ming Cho Lee is a sacred fellow because he's such a wonderful person and because his work is so very cool. Um, and so we all wanted to be Ming Cho Lee, um, which one can't, one can only be oneself and he would be the first to say that, but, um, he was a big influence and my thesis advisor, whose name was Robert Dahlstrom was a big influence. Um, uh, he was also a great fellow and an extraordinary designer, um, very different personality, but so he was a big influence. Uh, and then how did you end up in Vancouver? Like, how did you end up coming well, from Seattle to? Um, Robert Dahlstrom had in, I don't know, in the late 70s, taught here at UBC. And uh, then he went down to the University of Washington, taught there. Um, but uh, the, the department at the time wanted him back. So they phoned him up and said, come back. And he said, well, no, I don't want to come back, but I will send you a clone. And so he sent me up, and they were foolish enough to say, oh, great, here's a job. So then I moved. Right. Family in tow. Uh, it is kind of remarkable, and this is not the first time we've heard about this on the podcast, about the kind of, uh, the feeling of inadequacy when it came to hiring Canadians to fill the roles in Canadian universities uh, as design professors and design teachers. It happened at UVic. It happened at the University of Alberta. It happened um, uh, it did. other places too, right? Like, um, And I'm here to tell you, it is not only true of theater faculty at Canadian universities. It's true of, um, of faculty in many areas. And in that sense, it's still true. I, now that I'm a Canadian citizen, I'm a staunch opponent of that policy. I think that policy is ridiculous. It might have been useful in the 1970s, but it's not useful now. Um, uh, but the thing was, there were a couple things. First of all, um, the programs for which we were all being hired were fairly new. They were all started in the 70s. And so because there hadn't been any training programs at Canadian University before that, there wasn't any Canadian people trained with degrees. There were plenty of really great Canadian designers, but none of them had degrees. And of course, universities take the position that you must have a degree in order to teach at a university, which is not unreasonable in the sense that um, it helps to know how universities work. It's no guarantee of talent or ability but it does guarantee that you know how universities work because you were able to get in and out of one. Um, so there were a lot of Canadian and British people hired to, to teach design in those days, and now we're 
kind of retiring out and uh, hopefully it'll be mostly Canadians replacing us. Yeah, that's a great point. I remember um, the, uh, I don't know, Alan Stitchbury, when we spoke, he was one of the first MFA, I think he's a U of A grad, and he was one of the first MFA students there. He was. So um, that makes sense. Um, Okay, and and tell me about your work. So uh, during, um, after your graduate work, you were still, you were working professionally as a designer as well, right? You were Mm -hmm. working in Seattle. I never really stopped. I, I would do the occasional thing in Sacramento. I would... Started working in Seattle. Um, I assisted a bit, and that was kind of around. I think the farthest I went was Michigan. I'm essentially a West Coast person. I haven't been off the West Coast that much. Um, Three times, four times, very little. I'm very provincial and parochial. Um, uh, But um, so I just kept doing it while I was going to school because I was kind of working my way through school. I, I had little TA position and stuff. And then once I got here, I kept doing that. It took me a while to start uh, designing in Vancouver, but eventually I did that too. Uh, and the other phenomenon that, when, that we spoke about earlier as well was this phenomenon that when you got hired, you were expected to design all the shows yeah. at the faculty, right? That was fairly standard. So... Um, it was standard in the 70s and 80s, and I think it may be still standard at some places. Um, uh, it's not the way American training works. Um, but the idea was that because you had a, a new acting program, you needed the acting students to work on shows that were done professionally. Um, so you would hire professional union staff to build them, and you would hire professional designers to uh, design them. Um, and then also teach a class or two. And the trouble with that system is that then the acting students are being trained, but nobody's training any production students, nobody's training any design students. So when I got here, I said, oh, well, this will never do. We will have to change it, which took a while, maybe 20 years. It took 18 years probably. Um, so I did do quite a lot of shows here, which was tremendous fun. The the um, uh, the shop staff here are terrific. The, there was a faculty TD who's a West Coast legend, a guy named Ian Pratt. Um, if you're talking to technical directors, you should talk to Ian because he was just one of the two or three best technical directors I've ever worked with. Um, but... Um, Eventually I stopped, and the trouble is that, that while the s- student actors are very talented and capable, learning busily, they are only 19 or 20 years old, and when they're, you know, when they're playing in restoration comedy, <clears throat> um, the show isn't quite as polished as it might be. Yeah, that's understandable. And you want to work with other collaborators who are working. Or at, it's a different yeah. practice. Right? Yeah, it's just a different practice. Yeah. Um, it's hard to design for students because one begins to feel that you're imposing things on them that are just, leave the poor kids alone. Let them <laughs> learn the lines and talk loud and stuff like that. Uh, it does. Uh, one of the things that frustrates me about Canadian theater is I mean, we do have a core of kind of sophisticated, knowledgeable audiences, but uh, uh, and my conversation with Martha Mann kind of 
uh, I think, illustrated the tradition that we have in Canada, where it really comes out of an a very strong, and in many cases, very talented, but amateur uh, tradition. And unlike in Britain or even in the U.S., where there's been a longer history of professional theater and uh, and and emphasis on professional, like uh, an artistic practice and uh, something that's sophisticated and is not just uh, you know the kind of sideshow of how do you learn all those lines and how do you stand up there in front of all those people and speak? You know, it's actually creating work, and I think that that pervades. Canadian theater, and it's I find it um, no, and this is not to say that the performers and the and the people who are doing it professionally are are working that way. They're all striving, and many of them like are extraordinary, but the expectation from the audience is different. Uh, and it sounds like when someone wants to start a theater program, all like like. Back in the seventies and eighties, I mean, they've had there's graduate work doing design work, but that was dri driven, I think, largely by the by the artists in those programs, not by the theater, not by the um, faculty, not by the like the university saying, "What does a theater program look like?" Oh, it's a bunch of actors that were training to put on a show to be actors, right? and probably in yeah. Shakespeare. Well, uh, Martha and you are completely correct, I think, um, and I think it's an interesting story. Uh, um, it's a colonial story, of course. Um, there are performance traditions in Canada that have nothing to do with the English language. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's a great point, absolutely. Nothing to do even with um, plays, really. There are ceremonies and presentations and, and acting and performance stuff. But since there doesn't seem to be anybody who will buy tickets to that, you know, we as a country have done the French tradition, which are quite, or at least more European, and the British tradition, which I would add to the point about the Dominion Drama Festival. Um, the, the English tradition is also based on amateur dramatics, but everybody does it. You know, little villages have their Morris men and their church plays and their this and then that. So th they're a pretty sophisticated audience because the most sophisticated audience for live performances, people who are live performers <laughs> um, or, or associated with it in some way. And, and that's actually, I think, much of the English language Canadian audience. They are mostly theater people in one way or another, um, or many of them are. They're not, they're not people who go to events because they are sophisticated event goers. At some point in their lives, they were in a school play or they worked backstage or something. Um, and a lot of that is because they were working on community mm -hmm. projects. So in the early days here, I would do a bit of going around and adjudicating the festivals and stuff like that. Um, and actually some of the work was quite sophisticated. I saw a production of Copenhagen that I still remember, right? I thought, oh, gee, you people should really be being paid. They were doctors and one of them was a lawyer and, they knew how to have stage presence and it's a really interesting play and they were treating it in a very thoughtful adult kind of way. Um, but they weren't charging enough for tickets. Um, and that's the thing that I think doesn't happen enough in Canada is that we haven't got the gumption to charge enough for tickets. 
which to some extent, America has more people in it, so the regional theater system kind of lumbers along, charging for tickets. And, you know, the tourist event of Broadway manages to crank over. To do this stuff at the very highest level takes a lot of money, big chunks of money. It isn't money that makes for creativity. It just makes somebody's creative idea can actually fully get expressed by spending a lot of money. But if you're just talking to the air, if there's nobody, no bums in the seats or not enough bums in the seats, then it doesn't work and nobody sinks the money into it. So, and in Vancouver, I think this is particularly acute. There is a decent enough audience for um, you know, the lovely remounts of Shakespeare that Bard does every summer and sells 105%, right? I'm not going to argue with that. Um, and they even try to push the boundary a little bit. You know, it's not an unsophisticated audience, but the characteristics are that they're tourists and they're coming out from Surrey and they're not going to do that in the wintertime. Um, and they are willing to pay the ticket price, and it's intense. He doesn't have to pay to keep the building going. <laughs> it's a very, you know, it's a very narrow model. And so in Ashland, Oregon, this turned into Ashland Steak Shakes, and at, in Stratford, it turned into the Stratford Festival. But I'm not sure it's going to do that in Vancouver because Vancouver is very isolated. You have to cross an international border or a huge mountain range to get here, which is not true at Niagara-on-the-Lake or in Oregon. Um, so Vancouver has a, I think, interesting and unique Canadian problem, which is there's no people, therefore there's not very many audience members. Uh, it's maybe four million in the lower mainland. And if, you know, the standard 5% of those go to plays, there's just not going to be many people in the seats. Whereas if you're doing the same plays in the same way in San Francisco, that's 12 million people who can take BART and come in. Absolutely. Uh, and that, uh, that actually reminds me, I should probably be focusing on uh, other non-colonial theater or performance art as well, which is something I had never considered because I have no experience in that area. But I will definitely in the future start to investigate, see who I can talk to about those kind of traditions because I'm interested in that as well. Well, I have, I, I'll see if I can, I mean, the people that I know are choreographers and directors and writers, um, but it's quite interesting. Um, late in the 90s, I did some stuff with Margot Kane, um, uh, which sort of started me on what I was doing for 10 or 15 years. Um, and Margot was She's indigenous, but she's also suspect, not suspect, but she is one of those people who's using Western forms but doing indigenous stories. Um, uh, I think she just got an order of Canada. I hope she did. She really deserves one. Um, but yeah, it, it, those performance traditions are really interesting. Um, how you or if you can, adapt them to capitalism, I have no idea. I mean, we're working in a form which is essentially capitalism, right? <laughs> which I don't necessarily approve, but that's what the form is. And, and I don't know... 
because they're they're community, they're ceremonial, they're not just um, they are totally storytelling, but they're not. Um, I don't know whether it would be right to say you're supposed to make a living doing that, right. which is what I'm asserting to students every year. Is yes, you can make a living doing this if you get good enough at these things, you could make a living. Um, not that that's always true, but all right. Well, let's go back to just to your 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 design work as well. Um, you made come up to Vancouver and you started designing in the community. Um, what were the companies that you were working with when you first got here in the late? The mid to late late eighties or yeah. early nineties. Yeah, let's see. I worked with Touchstone. Mm -hmm. um, did I do anything with Boca? Boca didn't exist then. Um, Touchstone, I think, mostly Pink Ink. Um, I did a couple of shows with Pink Ink. Several shows. A lot of maybe Pink Ink might have been the first place I worked with. I did one or two things at the Arts Club. Uh, I never worked at Bard. Um, there may be somebody else in there. I did a couple of kind of corporate-y things, which I wasn't very good at. Um, and then when Electric Company started up, I worked with Electric Company a few times. There might be somebody else I can't remember. Uh, and any, any work that stands out to you as sort of um, establishing you in Vancouver as... You know, a hot property or as like the next? The next hot property. Yeah. Well, I don't know that I was ever a hot property. Um, but uh, I, got a, I got a Jesse Award or nomination for something that I can't remember. Um, I think it might have been Live Bird in Its Jaws, um, uh, which would have been a Pink Ink show, I think. Um, and so then I would sort of do one or two shows or maybe, oh, I, I did some shows at Gateway, several shows at Gateway. Um, that was fun. Those were musicals. I would do their Christmas musical for a while. Um, uh, Electric Company is probably the one that I, I don't know if Electric Company is the one I worked most closely with. Electric Company is the one that has the warmest place in my heart, put it that way. Sure. Um, but now that Roy is back at Touchstone, uh, Touchstone has a warm place in my heart because I did several shows with Roy. And anything from Electric Company that sort of stands out as your... Well, Electric Company is very interesting in many ways, right? Because Electric Company... There were a lot of theater companies founded in Vancouver in the 70s, Touchstone, uh, Performance Works. Um, now they all go out of my tiny brain. But um, And then there was kind of a hiatus during the 80s when nobody was really doing startups. Uh, that's not true. It's totally false. If you were a phone-in show, you'd get lots of calls. Um, but then in the 90s, again, there were more companies, and they were trying to do the way all startups are. They were trying to do innovative, interesting work that nobody had done before, which you kind of have to do in Vancouver because you don't have any money. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get a Canada Cancel Grant and it, if you want to get two or three bums in the seats, you have to present some kind of pitch that nobody's seen before. Um, so they'll come and see your show. And uh, Electric Company did that very successfully. They came out of studio. Studio is brilliant at getting those folks put together and um this is studio 58 studio 58 yeah yeah, yeah. um and uh i don't remember why i started working with them but they're quite interesting and very dynamic and you know 
good writers. They're not so good at editing. They're better now. But in the early days, it was right, 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 right. Oh, we have to cut something because it's six hours long. Oh, dear. Um, uh, but they're terrific and they're wonderful people and really talented. And uh, so I kind of liked working with them. I'm, I'm older than they are, right? So part of the problem is that I'm, kinda, I'm not really an old geezer in comparison, but I am older and... You need to work, I think, with people your own age more. People your own age are slightly younger. If you're a director, you kind of like to work with people just a little bit younger, particularly Canadian directors, I think. And if you're um, uh, a writer, it doesn't really matter, but usually your themes are kind of related to what you know for stories, which is your age group. (laughs) But yeah. So I guess that you wanted to know about a show that stood out, and that would have been Studies in Motion, which we did in the 2000s and is associated with all kinds of things in my mind. But That's great. Well, why don't we go there then? Uh, tell me about what the, what, how, what the impetus for its creation was, because uh, it's, been a, it's a really, been a really successful show as well. Like They had mm-hmm. a lot of success with it. Yeah. So how did it get started? How did you get brought onto the project? And, uh, and tell me about – well, first of all, tell me what the show is about first. Uh, yeah, and then talking about it, I'll have to go backwards a bit. So Studies in Motion is the story of um, Edward Moybridge, who you could call the inventor of the cinema. There are others inventors of the cinemas. He um, he was a photographer, and he was um, a bit crazy. He was Scottish. He was in an accident when he was a kid, maybe in his early 20s. Um, in a stagecoach and banged his head. And after that, his behavior was very odd from time to time. So he had a concussion or something, who knows. But he was a photographer. He moved to San Francisco in the 40s or 50s, 1840s or 50s, um, and set up as a photographer. So in those days, you know, photography was big glass plates, wooden boxes, exposed the chemicals, put it in a developing bath. And he um, he early on developed a process of taking photographs quite fast, so the shutter speed would be fast, and he would line up a row of boxes, and um, they would fire sequentially, and he would get a bunch of stills which could capture motion. Mm-hmm. Is it like the 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 horse? Yeah, the famous horse. The series, famous horse right? series. Yeah, yeah. Okay. he did. Hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I can't remember, but a lot of these series. And early on, he realized, well, yeah, now you can put them back together on one of the scopes that they had that would, you do little animations of a dancing man and stuff like that. Well, now you can do this. And if you shine a light through it, you see the horse run on the screen. So he did that. Um, Many other people were working on this, but he did it fairly early, and he had some funding from Leland Stanford, who was the railroad guy and the governor of California and early Silicon Valley. He was the author of Silicon Valley. Um, uh, so he had some funding, and he did these experiments and proved that um, you could do this, and this was one way of doing it. And he was also... A murderer. He murdered his he murdered his wife's lover. And so this is fairly dramatic material. 
<laughs> Here he is inventing the cinema and murdering his wife's lover and also kind of going a little bit crazy from time to time. Um, so, so Studies in Motion was about that. Um, the, the genesis of the play was um, in the, I don't know, 98 or 97 or something, I had done a show, a dance piece with Margot Kane, um, who's a choreographer, director in Vancouver, brilliant woman, um, about uh, a story about the Fraser River, people living on it, um, uh, f f indigenous people whose livelihood was salmon. And so a lot of it was on the river, in the river, um, about the river with the performers stepping in and out of different roles and then doing some movement dance kind of stuff. So I thought, well, you know, there's these video projectors. Why don't we see what we can do if we point the video projectors at the floor and just project the river? And so she thought that was cool. So then we said, and what we'll do is we'll put the audience up on bleachers. This is all very tame uh, stuff now, right? Like, who wouldn't do this? <laughs> of course you would do this. But in 97 or 6 or something, it, we hadn't seen it before. I'm sure people were doing it in Europe for the previous decade. But, um, and I'd always kind of wanted to fool a lot with projections. So we did. Um, the wonderful James Pollard managed to collar some very dim video projectors. And, and when I did that, so they were up in the ceiling pointing down, and I thought, oh my God, uh, why, that's light. Kong, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> it's not a backdrop, it's a stage light, golly. Um, so I wrote a grant, um, I talked to uh, Kevin and Kim and John and David and mostly Mansley, Kim, and Kevin, and said, look, I'm going to try and write a grant for the federal government to give me some money to do some research about using video projectors as stage lights. And they said, oh, okay. I said, so do you guys have a show that you want to kind of co-develop with the university, if I get this money, um, where that would be an interesting thing to do? And they said, yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, this Edward Moybridge guy we're thinking of. So I wrote the grant. They were going to be collaborators. Federal government gave us money. Um, and we started workshopping the play here with a couple of students playing younger people and professional actors playing older people and went through a couple of iterations. We did a... Um, we did a first version, I think it was in Push, I think it was part of the Push Festival on the Freddy stage, and then it went out on tour, and um, eventually I did put some lights into it, like it had shins, and then it, I think it was ultimately four projectors that, you know, up and in front, and so there were backdrops too, but it was mostly, environments were, environments were mostly created with projectors, instead of light or set. The, there were just props and a couple of scrims. So um, people were interested and impressed by that. It worked fairly well. It was 2006, so the projectors were all very dim and you couldn't see anything, but it, you know. 
meanwhile, this kind of thing had been being done in Europe for a decade, um, but nobody had tried it with a stage play. So I think that it was interesting in that regard. And it was a good show, right? It, um, it was a bit disjointed toward the end, but it had some really beautiful scenes in it. And um, it's an interesting story. And so it did well. Uh, and, and because this was a research grant originally, what kind of production, what did you have to produce to show your work for that research grant? This was my argument. Yeah. The work was the work. Right. And that, um, there, there are a number of uh, uh, sort of people who are a bit older than I am or my age and much smarter. Um, who'd been working on this kind of thing for um, a little bit. Um, so it was a SSHRC grant, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. I wish they would change it to shark, so they had the word art in there. But um, uh, And the contention of me and other people is that the actual artwork is the equivalent of scientific research. Um, so... And I think that that's true. I maintain that that's what it is. It's a different process, and the whole point of it is that you can't repeat it rather than you're supposed to be able to repeat it. But nevertheless, it's socially significant. It, if it's any good, it needs to be out there. How do you get it out there? You don't write an article about it. You put it out there <laughs> so that people can see it. The same way you read an article in a science journal. Yeah. Um, and so while this is much more difficult to assess objectively, in fact, the whole point is that you can't really obsess, uh, assess it objectively. Still, uh, society needs it done by Jingo and federal money and so forth. A lot to go into it. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, that... And of course, this is what Canada Council does. And Shirk has started doing it in the past um, maybe 25 years now. And I think, I think it's a good thing because I think occasionally it results in um, good and interesting work being done, which then maybe somebody else will write about in Canadian Theatre Review and maybe not, but the point is that a lot of people have seen it. Uh, and I think from a research perspective, it also gives everyone else uh, a jumping off point to go, well, they did this. So how can we take that and turn it around into something different? Into something different. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think that that was the whole thing about using video projectors in this way. And I don't know how influential that was. I mean, people were doing this all over the world, right? And they were doing it at about the same time. And when the 2010 Olympics got here, that was all video projectors all over the stadium. So... It's not that it was particularly unique, um, and, to, and in fact, um, I wish that more people would, people are a little scared of it now because, oh, it's hard technology. Well, no, but yeah, the thing that has made me happiest about it is workshopping because you don't, you know, you put four video projectors up in your workshop room and it's not that it's what you're going to do in the in the final product but boy is it a whole lot faster to try stuff mm -hmm. than calling a crew <laughs> putting up more lights yeah. and 
yes, moving lights will do about the same thing, but who on earth is going to have an arsenal of 40 moving lights in their studio? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially since the rendering process, like the, if you were to apply it just to the production period, um, like it takes so long to render new pieces. And, and as our discussion with Jamie Nesbitt showed, like sometimes it's not just one thing you're rendering, you're rendering 17 different parts and it takes forever. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like it makes sense to do it in a workshop, you know, uh, at least to figure out what does work and doesn't work and what images you want to work on and make better decisions. So you don't have to like, and if you just use it to bang a light on a performer, it's a lot faster than, but, you know, it's just a blob of light. Yeah. It doesn't matter that it has a few pixels and it's not what we're going to do really. It's just, are they going to be standing there? Mm-hmm. Will they be saying this? And even in the new technology of mapping, of like three-dimensional mapping with this stuff, the interfaces are so much better. I don't know too much about it, but I could I could see how you could follow people around. Oh, sure. In real yeah, time yeah. Right, yeah. With, with better servers to sort of, and that's a yeah. whole new kind of way of lighting. Absolutely something. new. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, let's back up to uh, like previous. You had you had done some projection work before this. Well, I I am somebody who has actually done a show using a three gun um, projector with red, blue, green. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, quite a few of them. I often didn't do them. Um, the one that I'm talking about uh, was with Seattle Children's, and it was b- a bunch of Boeing engineers who actually did all the technology because it was a video projector for part of it, and it was slides for another part of it. But I, you know, I did the slides, and I said, "Film this," and somebody filmed it. It couldn't possibly have been done without a Boeing donation because you know nobody had such a projector. <coughs> Nobody had the slide, but they had billions because they do corporate presentations of aircraft. So they had billions of slide projectors and 25 video projectors. This was like 92. Yeah, those were the days when you had like giant racks of slide projectors behind yes. all these screens, yes. right? And they, all would... and they all had to be rastered. Oh, my God. Technicians had to come in and raster them. And, uh... It was a nightmare. <laughs> an absolute nightmare. Uh, you don't know how good you have it these days. You That's right. Kids with your video. single video project, you yeah. buy it staples for exactly. God's sake. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, do you have any kind of? Uh, I mean, we're talking about sort of using projectors to light people. How do you feel about the integration between lighting, uh, current lighting technology, and and video? Like, how do you reconcile that and color well, temperature wise? And it's ugly. But, you know, the LED, laser LED projectors are getting better. And if you think of it in context, stage lighting at one point was done with candles or fire. Uh, so that's very nice warm light, pretty dim. Um, pretty soon, I don't know, maybe you and I will both be alive, but maybe not. But sooner or later, incandescent bulbs will be illegal. So we're going to get used to different color temperatures and or we're going to get better at making other technologies have nice color temperatures. Both of those things are happening. Um, so I think that there's some kind of transition going on. But I, it, I, of course there's transition going on. The direction in which I would like it to go, if, you know, if I were running the world, um, is simpler. Less stuff, less gear, less things, fewer programs to learn, less gizmos. 
this is, you know, I know that this is not a very popular point of view because historically with lighting particularly and projection also, we've gone very firmly in the direction of more and more and more and more and more gizmos. All of them being controlled by DMX, you know, which was written to do – one of my thesis advisors was one of the people who originally wrote the DMX protocol for USITT. And I remember us trying to get eDMX, a radical new protocol, and it was, it's taken years. Like, no, there's no standard. No one's been able to update it to get more than 512 <laughs> channels well, in the universe. And... It was well designed to do simple things. Right, yeah. But we don't want it to do simple things anymore. Well, you, got a you got LED fixtures out of a hundred channels, so you can yes. put five of those on a universe. Now, and, what do you do? And well, now you need another universe, yeah, and then you need twenty, and then you're going to need a multiverse of multiverses. Yeah, exactly, it's all very complicated. <laughs> I know. Meanwhile, there's still places in Canada that are using like twenty-four dimmer packs, and they've got. You well, know, every university, or at least this one. I mean, the old gear is still around, so. It's all getting very, very complicated. And one of the things that occurred to me about projection is, is that if, if you're willing to give up multiple sources and just use a wide angle lens, and if you're willing to say, well, okay, sooner or later, they'll be bright enough, um, then you have a far more simple framework of tools, which, although it's simple physically, it's four projectors or six or something, instead of 40 lights or 140 lights, um, it has a lot of range. You know, you can get any texture you want by just making some scribbles with a paintbrush. Um, and so it's conceptually simpler, which I kind of like because, partly just because I'm an old geezer and all the gear and people, you know, um, uh, Rob Sondergaard is setting up some brilliant thing. It's, it sounds fabulous, and people are researching it all over the place also. He's using Arduino to, I don't know what the sensor is, but there's a sensor and the moving light will follow the performer, so now it spotlights. Um, With Cast, it's at the black track system yeah, as well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And great. But also, too many things. Like, Okay, yeah, but too many things. But we're all geeks as well as being designers, and it's almost impossible to resist the appeal of a new thing. Mm -hmm. And if software development were different than it is, okay, you bought it, now it's obsolete, you're going to need another one. <laughs> or I, I, I just have the feeling that it's not easy enough. It's... It, it's great for big, big things, rock tours, corporate events, where you want people to be hired and paid vast sums of money to program all this stuff, and that's great. For developing a new play, where you're just not going to get that gear. Um, so that was why I thought, well, well, you could do this sort of with video projectors and maybe a director or a choreographer. If they can learn PowerPoint, they can learn to do this hasn't proven to be true. They want to bring in techno, but anyway, that was my idea. I worry about the face. Like I use, uh, I use, when I, uh, I did a lot of small venue stuff and got used to like in the backspace of tar Tarragon or Pesmerai or the studio spaces or even the mid, like even Tarragon main space, uh, your, your scale is such that I can focus on somebody's face and do subtle changes that, that, that speak to the emotion of the character or this play or the, story or whatever and 
just with changing subtle, subtle color changes or the direction of light or whatever, like it's a very – it's not a giant – it's not the big scale, right? And I feel like if you're going to one or two sources or three sources that you miss that opportunity to sort of change – Play with the shadows. Oh, of course. Right, and things like that. And, right? and, and you don't want to. Yeah. So I'm not proposing, well, yes, on the, on the, let's go to the extreme and see what the edge is. And I'm saying, yes, you must. And they're going to be covered with pixels too. Um, uh, on the other end of it, yeah, we'll throw a light in there. Maybe put a person on the light. Um, but what are you going to do for a gobo wash? Because you're going to want to surround them with beautiful something. Yeah. Maybe. And the other thing is, if you're in the rehearsal room and all you really want to do is turn the work lights out and stick a light up, you can put one projector up there a lot faster than 12 Altmans. Yeah, that's true. And then refocus it. Or just don't use it. All you try to do in the workshop, to the development workshop, is say, are they going to be over here or are they going to be over there? And are they going to be red? And now I'm going to need some more shadows. So now I know... I'm going to want, you know, two color sources over here so that I can play with them. Um, when you were talking about uh, the, oh, goodness gracious, the gentleman from Sacramento. Uh, Larry Shumate. Yes. Shumate. Um, and the big stairs and stuff. It reminded me of Adolf Apia and like the, his yeah. drawings of yes. all the stairs. And all uh, he, right? Larry had seen all yeah. the Apia. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, I'm, I'm, me too. Yeah. We, we've all looked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was certainly an inspiration for me when I went to Ryerson. Um, it seems like a long way from these broad strokes, um, three-dimensional things to painting on the actors. Um, do you feel like uh, – like I understand this impetus to get simpler. Like I totally get it. And I, I feel like live theater – is not it's never going to be film it's never going to be youtube or like or radio plays like it's got its own special thing and that's about the three dimensionality of it um do you think that video and the way that video, video is being used now flattens things out like is it because of the our changing vocabulary that's that's well, part of that YouTube? was what i was trying to fight with that what i was what i was and i guess i'm trying to fight with is if you treat the video as a background then it's going to flatten everything out. If you say, I'm going to replace the scene painter, so that my proposition was really is, okay, don't do that. Either have a background or paint it or use it for video, but it's not very important. It's just the background. What is actually important is the performer in the space, whatever the space is. And so, yeah, if I'm going to have an Appia set with levels and stuff like that, then I probably see this is why i thought your thing that i saw the push thing with oh, the right. triangles was brilliant with I the thought, black, yeah with black, the black writer black yeah. writer yeah. I thought, that guy's brilliant i love that and it was because it had so much texture um because it's one of the lights things that lights can do particularly in poor theater is give you environment on what surfaces you have <laughs> such as they are a chair a table a floor um that that lifts you out of the real world and into the theater world, which I think is always where the magic comes from. It's really hard to get theatrical magic in a box set. You just sit there saying, this would be so much better on television. I mean, <laughs> uh, 
Um, because uh, I could see it because I'd be sitting and looking at the camera instead of over here in a corner where I can, you know, it's like. <laughs> or looking at the spill from something that you can't yeah. control. And yeah. There's a flash on something you couldn't. Yeah. yeah what was partners. that over there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I used to get really distracted by sources. I used to like when I was. It's funny how I just lost this obsession. But when I first started, when in these small spaces, because there's no masking. All I could see were all the faces of all the backlights and sidelights. And I used to put little flags over everything so I wasn't distracted. And then after a while, I was kind of like, "Oh well, I got better things to do with now." <laughs> no one else seems to care. I'm the only one who cares that I I don't want to see the source of that lamp. But uh, it was something I found very distracting at the beginning. Um, it's not as magical. Yeah, it's just not as magical. Exactly. I don't want to see the strings of the. No, the, you're not supposed to see the puppet strings. No. Exactly. So let's talk about process. Um, uh, I'm interested, because uh, you train in the U.S. Um, and then came up here. I imagine mm -hmm. things are fairly similar. But uh, what, uh, let's say for set design, what is your first kind of step into the play? I imagine script analysis and everything mm -hmm. like that is how you sort of get into it. Um, how yeah. do you sort of structure your approach? Well, not the same way I did 30 years ago. Um, I have a couple of observations about protest difference, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very, very interesting. And I think that it's entirely economically driven. I think that the process is essentially the same in English language theater. But it, there are national differences. Um, and I think that the, in, in, I think that in Britain, and Europe, although it's not English language, and the United States, there is a, a real commitment to collaboration, which is pretty specific. It kind of means that um, a set designer is going to do the set, and the director is going to adapt to the set. Um, they're going to talk, they're going to collaborate, they're going to work together to get it there, but then the director's going to work with what's there. And um, I think that's entirely because of economics. I think that there is a, a desire in Canada to work that way. But I think that necessarily, particularly in small theater, a lot of directors have kind of had to become untrained set designers and untrained costume designers. And it's because they've only got a week to work with the actors, or maybe two weeks, and they know that they're gonna have to stage them. And they got hired first, and they started thinking about the play first. And so they kind of have a picture in their head. And if they can make a picture of the picture, great, but they can't make drawings of the picture, and they can't get a shop to build the picture. So what they're hoping for is a designer who's going to make the picture that they have in their head appear on the stage in a practical way. Right. Um, so in other words, I've had, um, I've had more collaborative experiences because as soon as you don't do that, then to some extent a set designer is actually directing. Because mm -hmm. um, you're setting up the context and the framework and you have to think about things like transitions and you have to think about 
um, can we actually get around and is it going to both be functional and interesting and beautiful? Um, so I think that I've done my the sets that I'm happiest with, I think I've mostly done in the US. I think that with lighting design, um, most Canadian directors come out of acting and lighting is a mystery to them. And so you get in the theater with them and you collaborate like crazy. It's much more collaborative. Line design, in my experience in Canada, is more collaborative than set design. Um, and it's because set, you know, you have to be done <laughs> well before rehearsal starts. You have to be so done that you got to produce drawings with models and all that other gack. Most of which doesn't really have a lot of meaning to directors, even with directors with a lot of experience. And that's another thing. I've worked with more American directors who actually could use a rendering to stage. But I've, I don't think I've ever worked with a Canadian director who's happy with a rendering. They want a bottle and not a computer bottle. Thank you. And I don't blame them because there's no time to get it wrong. There's no tech time in the theater. There's just you're going to get it right first time out of the box. It's going to go into the room. You've got three minutes. You're going to be done. And then it's going to be it. You do, you do a spacing rehearsal to make sure that one's going to fall down the stairs or where yeah. the exit is. Maybe you'll get a spacing rehearsal yeah. if they get the thing in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> if it doesn't fall behind. Um, that's interesting. I uh, we I just had a discussion with um, uh, with Mara Gottler about uh, the English versus the French way of working, uh, just in Canada. Uh, and you're right; like the French seem to. Be you're much there more from collaborative. The get go. Yeah, you're in rehearsal, and maybe they'll build a little bit of it, and somebody will push it around in the rehearsal room. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also striking that I never thought of a different way. Then you start working in English theater, you think, well, this is the way it's done. This like, is I'm, it. This yeah. is the deal. Like, uh, and as a lighting designer, obviously it's collaborative. Although, I mean, you've got it's more collaborative. Hours. Yeah, it's more collaborative. <laughs> but you're also like, I can only do so much. I so have no work time. I have no yeah. crew. If you I've, don't like what's up there, I'm sorry. We can make it dimmer. Maybe <laughs> if it's a moving light, we can point it over here. Yeah. It's it's not the economics of it are what makes it that way. I don't know of anybody in English Canadian theater who loves it. But then even in bigger theaters, you sort of do it that way. Yeah. Even though they could afford to – well, I don't know if they could afford to. I mean, what cost the money is paying the actor and the orchestra? But it's just we're not geared for that. The theater has to be rented to a trade show if it's not being, you know, used to sell tickets. And even then, it's going to make more money off the trade show. So, you know. I wonder uh, also what we're losing. I mean, I guess that um, because we've gotten so good at it or as good as we can get working in that environment um, – there's still beautiful work being produced, obviously. Uh, but I wonder what we would, like where the value, whether the value is in our own satisfaction with what's being put on stage or whether anyone would notice that it's that much better. Or, or do we end up with stuff like Robert Lepage and uh, that, that is extraordinarily better than... And I think Lepage is Lepage because of the process. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as you know, in that process... The iterative audience is a key player. It's not done until it's toured the country a couple of times. Right. And then it's going to come back out of the box again at some point and tour it again. Uh, 
Uh, I think as I think as a way of developing new work, it's probably the best way. Mm-hmm. And I think that Canada, English Canada, French Canada doesn't matter. Until you have a national literature, theatrical literature, you're always going to be groping imitatively. And so I think that there's a lot of Canadian national theatrical literature being developed, but it's hard. There's one center, Central Canada, right? And then another center, Quebec, and the two solitudes don't do a lot of talking. Not to mention the the, the, the differences between East and West, like Western Canada and Central Canada. Like there's, a again, the difference in traditions there too. Even, Huge. Right? Huge differences. Yeah. Um, and, and no real money. So it's not, it's, you know, other than third world countries, probably one of the hardest places in the world to develop a Canadian theater. And yet it's happening, right? It isn't that it's not happening. It is happening. People are talking about it. People are doing it. Um, so it's just challenging. <laughs> I always found it interesting too, like in the U.S. with the regional circuits. I mean, and I, I don't know a lot about the U.S. market, but my understanding is when there's a exciting production in L.A. that maybe I don't know, maybe it gets brought to Chicago or to or New York. Or New York. People will workshop things out of Los Angeles, sometimes Seattle, Chicago, into New York. Yeah. Absolutely, that happens all the time. Um, not everything. And one of the things you know, I haven't been doing American theater for. 15 or 20 years now, 15 years, a long time, turn of the millennium, so 20. Um, it, it does tend to look the same. What's different about it is the process, but interestingly, the process, for the bigger places, the, the things that are small theater, like most Canadian theater is small theater. Really, there's two or three companies that by U.S. standards are, and those are just mid-size, right? You know, the Guthrie budget is $100 million or something like that. Um, and I think that to some extent, all large theater tends to look the same. It's um, Innovation comes from the margins, right? Interesting stuff comes from the margins, and then it gets into the places where there's tons of money, and for a little while it looks new, and then it all starts to look the same. Yeah. So that's why I like the small stuff. It's because I'm easily bored, and once I've done it, and yeah, I did it wrong, I'm not going to get it right the next time. I'm going to go do something else now. Um, the stuff that I've been excited by the most, I think, is the stuff that's been in situ or pop-up or yeah. non-traditional yeah. work. And so that's the strength of Canada. Right. That's where, first of all, we're not quite as uh, colonial and racist as our friends to the South. So therefore, we are somewhat more capable as a country of listening to other performance traditions, including people who have been here for time immemorial and also people who are coming. Right. Um, and that's interesting. And that's all going to be pop ups. And it's, but it's going to be different communities. Mm-hmm. And in maybe in some way kind of accessible communities like the New York Yiddish Theater of the 30s, right, which was Greek to anybody who wasn't in that community but was pretty cool. Um, so that's, a, that's something that I think is going to start to happen or is happening. Um, 
And then also the stuff that has been happening since, really, since the 60s with the, you know, the farm show and factory theater and all that stuff that it's essentially Canadian. It's not – occasionally it's going to throw off a, you know, come from away just because something that can be commercialized and make pots of money for somebody. Um, but there is the opportunity to do what I think is more about the origins of the form, and that's community validation and catharsis and all of that, which is necessarily pretty small. You know, Athens was a little tiny town. <laughs> it wasn't very big. That's a great point. And I think that there's still a value. Like, as much as I decry uh, this kind of holdout of the amateur thinking like my dad's got a barn let's put a show on right which happened literally several times i know i think of three places in ontario where it's happened literally in a barn um besides the red barn theater in yeah, ontario yeah. um but uh as much as i decry that i still see the value like mo some of my most like precious theater experiences have been in Amateur and community theater because of the stakes that it has. Because uh, Yes, absolutely. And the difficulty comes about when that's all that the society is willing to afford, yeah. which is, you know, unpaid people. So the, the challenge with Canadian small theater, and I, I like to believe, but what do I know, that the only way around this is government subsidies because – it's not going to put as many fans in the seats to start as it needs to pay people. But it, it does always tend to look the same then. And also you lose a lot of talent because people just can't – Vancouver does nothing but bleed talent, right? I mean – I know uh, – and again, we spoke about – I spoke about this with Scott Miller um, at the Blythe Festival. Another – like I talk about the Blythe Festival all the time on the podcast because that's been my most – Precious experience. When I started there, Kelly Fox and Timo Gorman had just moved out from Vancouver because at that time in the early 90s, there was no work. There were six companies producing and you couldn't make a living. And the film industry is great, but again... You have to want to do film. Yeah, you have to want to do film. film. Yeah. And good, good luck getting a principal role. You were doing a lot of, yeah. uh, you know... Yeah. Um, not guest starring, but whatever the, whatever the non-principal at work is, speaking work. Um, yeah, and so they moved out to Toronto where there were 100 producing companies, uh, you know, 10 or 12 medium to large side theater, but then there were another 80 independent producers producing stuff all yeah. around. Within a metropolitan region that has not great but okay transit and you can kind of get around and unless you're shopping for props, you don't have to own a car. Right. And yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Like even I know technical directors that don't own, who don't drive, let alone own a car. Um, yeah. Okay. So um, you, you said your process has changed as well over the last 30 years. What are you doing differently now that you weren't diff doing well or vice versa? So part of this is just because I'm old and grumpy, right? But my, my process doing set design, you're asking about process and I'll get back to that. Um, it's to talk to the director. Working as a Canadian designer, your essential aim is to talk to the director as little as possible and figure out what's in the director's head. Um, I don't have to do this. I have a luxury of not doing this because I have this nice university teaching gig. I could talk to the director for months and wouldn't matter. But if you're one of our alumni, a professional working designer, or the director, you don't want to spend <laughs> endless. It's a fee commission. It's not an hourly. <laughs> so endless collaborative hours back and forth, back and forth. 
fun, but not compensated. So um, you try to get as fast as you can to uh, you know, a sketch model because people still want a sketch model. It can't really function. And sometime in the, I don't know, sometime in the 90s, um, this is why people don't want to work with me. I decided, ah, I don't want to do that. You got a CAD model. Neener, neener. Okay, fine. I'll make you some little sketch. But that's like $1,000. <laughs> um, and again, from the point of view of, and from my perspective, it's great. Student can make the sketch model. I can tweak it. Um, but from somebody else's perspective who's actually, this is what they're trying to do all the time to make a living, a model takes a long time. And a director wants to change a sketch model. Oh, my God. You know, there's 12 hours gone. So you want to be able to sit there and mess with the model and move it around and cut it up and stuff like that. You need to go through that. But that time is bleeding you money. So you have to juggle that. Um, and my process used to be I loved to do that. That was great. And now my process is, yeah, this is why I'm not designing so much anymore because I don't want to do that. I already thought of, and this is also partly being an old geezer. Yeah, I did that in 1998, and it didn't work. <laughs> so I don't feel like doing it now. Yeah, I can't build you a sketch model and prove to you that it doesn't work. Blah, blah, blah. I hate it. Um, so really, I shouldn't be allowed to design anymore. And I kind of stopped um, for a lot of reasons a couple of years ago, a few years ago. I still do shows here for School of Music Opera because I love her dearly and want to support her. And I wouldn't turn it a show down, but nobody's asking me. Um, except then I think, you know what? I've got 30 alumni out there. And if I do this show, <laughs> one of them won't. And I'll live if I don't do it. And they need the money. So I don't know whether it's age or cynicism or what it is, but I don't do it much and I'm too cranky about it. And part of it is this isn't really going to be collaborative because you've got an idea in your head because you have to. Yeah. And the other part of it is, nah, it's going to take too much time mm -hmm. because it is time consuming. Collaborative iterations are actually how you get to good work but they take a pile of time. Yeah. And the only people who get paid that way are IATSE and actors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and direction designers don't get paid that way. Um, yeah, it's very true. I, I you know what, one of the reasons, like I, like I have a lot of nostalgia about my career because I have the opportunity to have nostalgia because I'm now in uh, now my second career after leaving theater. And, uh, you know, it was... It was a great time, but one of the reasons that I left was because of this the loss of the satisfaction of creation because you're the creative part and i never cons I never considered this before in the way that you're presenting it, but like for me, the interesting bit was shrinking every single time because I would have a conversation with the director I'd see a run through i'd do my I'd have my moment of like thinking creatively about the show and the problems we had to solve I'd solve the problems. And then it was all, uh, now I have to draft the plot. And, you know, you work in, a process is pretty, process is a process most of the time, except if you're in hard house, because the process is 17 feet thick. Uh, 
or you're going to the Globe and Theater in Regina where, you know, you have some interesting problems to solve. But once you solve them, the next time you go there, I've already solved those problems. Uh, and so the interesting bit was shrinking. And it never occurred to me that it was because of this collaborative process. Because you're trying to become more efficient. I have to do three shows this month. I can only meet with the director twice. And I don't have any more time. And we have to get this show up. And it also reminds me about why I enjoyed The Black Rider so much. Um, I, I said to you before we started this that the like if anything was going to stop me from leaving the business, it was the process and the show of The Black Rider. Because I was out at uh, the Roxy in Edmonton doing the redesign uh, for the for the main stage kind of remount of it in 2004. And I was there for two weeks. And I was creating – I was in the space every day. I was creating with Ron Jenkins and Michael Scholar and the director. And the actors. And, and the actors. From a lighting designing yeah. perspective, you know, working with the director and the actors, okay, this is who needs to be working. Exactly. <laughs> and they all need to be there. Yeah. <laughs> they can't be somewhere else. It's true. And I think that maybe that's part of it. Like I just – it wasn't – all, all, all that existed – was the rash of, we don't have enough money, I don't have enough gear, I'm, I have fewer hours in the theater, and you want me to accomplish what? I and, can't do that. And the time to troubleshoot your way out of that, oh God, there isn't really enough time, into, wow, okay, this is an opportunity. We don't have this stuff, but what can we do with what we do have, all of us, because it's going to take, you know, all of us, you're going to have to rethink that whole monologue, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, damn. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and you wonder why. I mean, this is why people who are, are creating their own work outside of the theater because they can do interesting work. I mean, I, I, um, I think I was also frustrated by because of this process, and now it's even worse because you only have two weeks of rehearsal. Back then, we had three weeks of rehearsal and a good solid week in the theater, and now that's shrinking. The work was better, and even then, I was kind of disappointed by. A third of the projects that I was doing, you can't go back and fix it. Yeah, there's no time to fix it. Yeah, and and the quality of everyone else's work because of the time crunch and the amount of budget you had, you're like, this show could be so much better, you know. Or why aren't we workshopping it more to get to a better point before we get into rehearsal? But well, I think that the process is known, and I think that. I mean, it, it's iterative. You're not done the first time you're done. You're done maybe the fourth time you're done. But I don't know. We somehow haven't wrapped our heads around that. Back to set design. So you have to get all this done, this whatever minimal collaborating you're going to do. Helps if you've worked with the people before and you know and love them. Um, then you got to produce all these drawings. And the f this is another difference between Canada and the United States. Um, in the United States, it's, it's assumed that a designer's drawings are going to be pretty loose and random. If you're a union member, you need to produce the ones that you've been trained to produce. Um, but that if it's a theater of any size, somewhere there's going to be a TD who's going to do shop drawings. Well, you know, there are not that many places in Canada that have a TD that does shop drawings. And so the shop is building from the designer's drawings, the set designer's drawings. And therefore, A, you have to make them pretty good. And B, you have to get them done. Yeah. You're lucky in some small theaters, you're lucky to have a TD at all. Exactly. Yeah. And there's nobody but you that knows what a scale ruler is. The PM does, but they're not admitting to it. <laughs> 
And so if you want the thing to be there, you're going to have to produce some stuff that is buildable. And you you can't, it isn't really fair to just say, oh, and here's my model. I don't know, it's kind of right, which is where you get to with a director, right? If Or even if you're collaborating, and even if you're not, you're still going, yeah, okay, well, that's still a little wrong. Um, so you got a pile of work to do. And it all has to be done in enough time for them to look at it and go, oh, yeah, well, uh, what would you like to do? And then, you know, make that decision and change that stuff and then get it done. It's a, it's a brutal process. Um, and everybody really shortchanges it in some way or another because there just isn't time not to. It's worse, I think, in set design. Costume design, they just take advantage. The theater company, whatever it is, just says, oh, well, you're going to have to be here for three weeks. And since, you know, two-thirds of it is a pull anyway, okay, fine. But set design is probably not going to be mostly a pull. The props will all be pulled and nothing else will. And whatever it is that you're going to build is you're going to have to produce some graphics. Working from the set design perspective, um, many, many people just don't do that. And so we have this interesting situation of this population of designers who aren't in the professional organization, which is all about assuring the professional theaters that you will get this material. That's why we're here. We certify that this designer. Um, but the theater company doesn't really fundamentally care whether they get it or not. What they care about really is the designer getting on with the director and people buying tickets to the play. And so there are a lot of people, some of whom can, but just don't do the ADC standard graphics. Um, and there are a lot of people who just can't. Um, and they get by by going into the shop or hiring an assistant or all of those things. So it's really a curious anomaly and I think most curious for set designers in that the things that you are supposed to be doing actually have no value or very little value. You get yelled at, yeah. but you don't get not hired next time. <laughs> and I think to some extent that's true for lighting designers, but lighting designers don't have to produce as many graphics. And, you know, a lot of the time you're dealing with somebody's house hang anyway. And, and once you get past, and you have to be there, or you don't have to, but you, you often are for the hang, so you can stand on the ground and answer questions. Um, and it's all much more compressed, and it all comes after you know more. It isn't that it's easier, it's just that it's all stuck together in an indigestible lump. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas set design is way out there, spread out, and they're very different. Um, and I think challenging in different ways. Um, so my next question, I'm going to lead into the, the education component here then. How do you <clears throat> train people to work in that system? Like if, if we all know what the perfect way is, like, like one sort of method is to sort of teach you all the rules and then you can break the rules when you get into the real world. Um, is it worthwhile setting people up like that and go, oh, you're going to be like, here's how you collaborate. And then you get out there and go, I've had one meeting and now my drawing are due. Like, when do I do that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. When do I do that part? Uh, well, the short answer is I don't know. And 
another part of that short answer is it's changing really fast. Maybe the best thing to do is go out and start a company and work it your way because the fundamentals of it are economic in one sense and personal relationships in another sense. So you need to work with people that you work well with and you need to get paid for doing it. And even 15, when was I? I was on the ADC board in the late 90s. And even then, it was different than it is now. And one of the things that's made the biggest difference is CAD, right? Um, so now, yes, we have to teach people CAD. Oh, they can't learn it. It's hard and expensive software, and it changes every month, and blah, blah, blah. And although I'm sure this happens in medicine, in in the life of a stage designer, when you have to fork over another 20, no. Yeah, well, and I started using a product called DraftSite, which is a free product. There's yeah. a pro version of it, but there's yeah. a 2D version of it that was free. Um, when I came back after training as a medic the first time, I did a couple designs, and I didn't. I wasn't going to buy AutoCAD. I, I had I had a copy of AutoCAD Lite, but even then, the up the new license for that had was a thousand dollars, and now it's more. Uh, when I originally bought it, it was six hundred dollars, but it didn't work anymore because it's not backwards compatible. <laughs> and because you have to buy a new computer, yeah, and oh. the whole nine yards. So I went with DraftSite, and it, I made it work. Um, couldn't do three D. I could stand stuff up on its side, so I could do a section that was consistent. But it certainly wasn't Vectorworks. Nope. Yeah. And, and, and it, I don't know if it's still there, but that's one question because, you know, they last a couple years and then suddenly they're gone because whoever programmed it has moved on to other things. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's always changing and it's hard to learn. And although – so – there are no more drafting classes in high school. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that whole group of nerdy kids like me who probably would have taken something, a shop class, a drafting class, nope, they're all taking computer classes now because they have to learn to program. And maybe they learned a little bit of C++ or something, but what they can't do is use computer tools. Mm -hmm. They can work on their phones. And maybe one or two of them can edit in After Effects and stuff like that. They can post YouTube videos. But if you want to do a drawing, now they're at C and they have to learn it. And they don't have a computer for it because, you know, they have little tablets with it. <laughs> so... <laughs> I know. Use a mouse. Here's a mouse. Use a, we used to use these things called mice. Ew. Trackpads. Can't draft with a trackpad. I just try. I throw the computer at the window before I do that. Um, yeah. So how do you? I don't know. How do you teach them? I don't know. Well, uh, with limited success for the ones who probably would have done a little bit better in pencil, because that's the other thing about pencil. When you're done with it, there it is. <laughs> You don't have to print it exactly. You can look at it anyway without printing it. Printing is a whole world in itself, right? It comes out the wrong scale because they haven't figured out how to. <laughs> I, for one, never figured out windows in CAD. Like I just would draw a triangle and then print a scale. I never, I don't know, I never figured this out where you had like that special, direct, like the printing or I forget what the frames 
formatting and sizes and tiling yeah. and all that gack. Yeah. Never figured that out. Well, it's stupidly complicated, yeah. right? It's being built by programmers who have no clue of what the actual person doing the work needs to do. Yeah, or for yeah. architects who that is the that's the labor saving process. They of have CAD monkeys who do that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never figured it out. I mean, I I mean I, I was always able to produce a scale drawing, but um and to and I always <clears throat> one thing I always did was because I had learned how to draft in pencil first, my standard was it has to look like a pencil drawing. The same thing that I would do in a pencil drawing, I would do on the CAD. So when I, for example, uh, I'm going to slag WYSIWYG just a little bit because um, I, I worked there for six years. Um, when I started using WYSIWYG, it was not the same level of quality that I was used to in using CAD. It just wasn't. The legends were different, the line weights, everything else. And so I kind of went, well, it was a it was a it was a compromise because I could do all the shots that was very convenient and the library was huge and so that was convenient. And you so can do I a said, nice rendering. And I can do a nice rendering, which my directors were like, what are you showing me? I what is this? I, I don't know what that this is. That doesn't seem to tell me anything. I'm like, but it shows you exactly <laughs> what it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I can't see it. Yeah, exactly. They didn't care. Um, but uh, so so that was my, you know, that was my touchstone. But when you're learning in CAD, I don't know what, I guess you have to learn the standards, but I have nothing to sort of base it on because now you're. And it's really hard to make it look like pencil. Everything but I'm is. with you. If it doesn't look at least as half as good as a pencil drawing, what's the point? It just looks ugly, which convinces everybody that it's going to be ugly, and then they phone it in, you know? It's like, um, well, we're teaching it, and um, uh, Patrick and I both do it. And I wrote a whole innovations grant with Ron Fedorik, BC Innovations, back in 92 or 3 or something, and we got some money. We got like 60,000 bucks to set up a CAD lab, which, of course, the instant we set it up, obsolete, everything is gone. What are you doing with this old gear? I can't update that. Um, So that was when we learned, yeah, okay, they have to buy their own computer because we can't keep up. We can't do it. Um, But, you know, the institution is committed to digital. It will replace teachers with Autobots at some point. And... Um, uh, because it costs a lot of money and we don't want to have a lot of students and we're just, we talk. Um, I don't, I don't blame us, uh, but there it is. And it is the kind of stuff that you, I think that there's a sort of student who goes into engineering, more of whom used to go into theater, but now fewer of them do because more and more of their parents are saying, software. And they're going, yeah, video games, like design video games. Um, But who have enough self-criticism to go, yeah, okay, this doesn't look like the famous person's drawing in my textbook that I should make it look like that. They can't see it. Most, more of them than in the 90s now are just plain not able to see it. There are still some. I mean, uh, we're now graduating, maybe we would graduate four in two years, and now it's down to three. We get more students. It's a conundrum that we haven't solved, and I don't know who has. I, uh, but the American point of view on this is, yeah, well, whatever. You teach TDs to do that. 
And so then the TDs take whatever garbage the designer cranks out and make it real. It is kind of remarkable. I spoke to somebody who's doing a, a master's in TD in technical direction at Yale, mm-hmm. and it was an engineering degree. I mean, it didn't get the iron ring at the end of it, but that's what they were doing. But that's what they're doing. Yeah. 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 And also, you're going to have to produce working drawings. Yeah. So the that may be the only way out because there's fewer and fewer people who have any kind of flair who can also deal with the over-complexity of CAD programs and the stupid stuff that you have to learn, like, how do I print this? And, oh, gee, when I do print it, all the line weights are wrong. (laughs) I've got to do it again. Um, You know what? There is something to be said, though. I I know when we started producing CAD, I was in the first year of trial where we switched entirely to CAD and and we left the hand drawing behind. And I had a discussion with Kevin Lamont, and I don't know if this was in the first episode of the title block, but... We talked about what, what's necessary. Like, what's the drawing for? Like, when I, when I did a lighting plot, or when I saw a set design, for example, by Sula Page, who's a master drafts person, and, uh, or Michael Egan, and, like, it communicates, it's a, such a rich document that mm-hmm. communicates so much information. Paint detail, cornice work, Textures, texture, the feel, structure, flavor, oh, what it's going to be like as a show. Exactly, what it tastes like, like everything. And, uh, and the same with the lighting design. Like the lighting plot was my, because I didn't have a drawing that I could, like I wasn't doing renderings, it was my expression of my ideas uh, prior to getting to the theater. And so I took a lot of pride in what it looked like. And I mean, Phil Sagan, uh, who was the, was ahead of me at Shaw as the assistant, he would draft in pen. And I was like, you're a mad person. How do you draft? Like, I can't draft. There's no way I would draft in pen because it's, I'm going to smudge and I'm also going to make a mistake and then it'd be all fall apart. But it was a work of art. But we came to this decision that, you know, what's the plot floor? Like who uses it? Well, the, the electrician uses it to put a lamp in a certain position. They may, they don't because we have color changes. We don't. They don't look at it for color changes. We have different schedules for that. Uh, if it's moving lights, you need to have. Where is it? What is it addressed at? What's its DMX channel? Where All am I charts. plugging it in? Yeah. Um, that's it. So if that's the case, then maybe the drawing is evolving into a temporary schematic that doesn't have to be beautiful. It just has to convey a minimal amount of information, and maybe, you know. And I think this is two different things mm-hmm. with a lighting design. So the opportunities of CAD is really what this is about. Um, I think it's two different things with a lighting design and a set design. Yeah. And in a way, one of the things that a lighting design can do, if not for the director, until directors get trained, at least for you as a designer, as WYSIWYG does, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, working with a 3D model yeah. and lighting it sort of, yeah. I can sort of do my own little workshop which is great. I have a better clue of what it's going to look like in the room. If it happens pretty fast, like, you know, in your head is some sort of feeling of what it's going to be in the room. But here's a picture I can show to people, head electricians and directors and stuff. That's, that's nice. Um, doesn't matter if it's in scale. Scale isn't important. It's just flavor. And th- sooner or later, it'll get more personalizable somehow. I'm not sure how. For a set designer, that's, the, that's a 3D model. Forget flat drafting. So one of the things I say is uh, I don't want – don't ever, don't ever do flat drafting. You build a model, same as you would. 
we have this problem of directors don't live in model space. And it, in fact, isn't model space. It's a flat thing, right? So, you know, we have students now, um, young women's doing a research project. And, well, what if we put them in VR gear? Okay, maybe. It's still... A physical model would yeah. sure be better. You mean the director of VR yeah. gear, so they can walk around yeah. with their uh, yeah. But then they start, you know, then you have to know how to use the gear. Or you're up somewhere in the ceiling and going, but this looks weird. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's interesting. No, you're absolutely right. And I think for set design, it's different because you're expressing different ideas. And you have to be pretty precise to and, cost it and everything else. And you, but you, the set designer, don't necessarily have to do that. Right. Somebody who's good at that kind of thing my view on that, and I don't know how many TDs would agree with me, is, yeah, okay. A lot of people would just give them a physical model. British trained designers would just say, here's the model. Get it more or less like this. Get out your scale ruler. But, you know, mostly the model's in rehearsal, so it doesn't. <laughs> but a CAD model, yeah, okay. Take it apart, rebuild it, do your flat drafting, do the whole nine yards. Tell me what you want me to change or just change it. <laughs> Um, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad process, but you need the TDs who are okay with it. Um, interesting. So what about projections? So, um, I, I wanted to come, step back a little bit and talk about your process for projection because it's not the same as set or lighting. No. And, uh, now it used to be that projection was under the purview of the lighting designer when it was all pounding projectors and and slide projectors and things. But there were projection designers who came out of the art world or were very specialized or were set designers that were doing a projection contract for that show. Um, how has the process for projection design changed? I imagine the computer is... Well, it's, like, it's the gear that you need to learn, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So the first projections I ever did, I don't think they were... I think the second one was Pawnee's, but the first one was the, <coughs> what was that little Japanese one started with an R? Oh, that, God, I have no idea. Right, not Ryobi, but something. Huh. They were smaller than Pawnee's. It was a small show. I will, I'll do, I'll make sure I do some research and put them in the show notes for those who are interested, but I don't know what the projector name is. Painted glass slides. Mm-hmm. And and four by five cibachromes, like you would use on a Pawnee, only smaller. And then, you know, Pawnee's, <coughs> and then ectographics. The, so I sort of did all of those. I would paint my own slides or take my own photo of the artwork. I think a few times, you know, you got better photos if you actually had a professional do the photograph. But And so, right, it was, unless you painted it yourself, it was quite a long time between the time you did the image and the time you actually saw the image on Yeah, the people stage. complain about rendering times. So I'm like, yeah, try to do, send your film off to a lab and have it developed. And, and then come, come back. back and then yeah. be too dark and need to be burned right. in or right. something. Like, it's okay, right. Um, and, you know, the number of people that it takes to change a slide on a big pony and then re-raster the whole, my goodness. Um, well, so, you know, ADC's developed a lot of projections rules for, for what you have to produce. And I think that that works fine for backdrops. I think, it, I think that, you know, projected backdrops are essentially scene painting. 
The things that <clears throat> people are doing, though, with even with front projection and movement tracking and feedback loops and live camera, I don't think you can design before you get in the room. I think it's the way lighting ought to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to have these these pieces of gear, and they're going to sit here for now. <clears throat> and we're going to have a couple of cameras, and we're going to have this or that connect or whatever it is that we're going to use. And then <clears throat> we're all going to try stuff until we like it. And if you deviate from that, you start getting garbage. Because um, <clears throat> it was one of the reasons that I went and said, yeah, okay, I'm going to just treat this as lights so that I can design them, sort of. Mm -hmm. Because then you can have an arsenal of images and you're going to plug it in and it's going to do this and you're going to hate it and you're going to get another one and try that. And you can kind of do that in tech, mm -hmm. kind of. Um, but predicting what's going to work is exactly like predicting how, what's going to work with lighting. Mm -hmm. And yes, you can, there are programs, CAD programs that will model it, so you can invest the 10K in the gear to model it. Um, but it's expensive, yeah. and I can't afford it at a university, so the way I teach it is, say, start learning this software, which, by the way, is obsolete software running on my obsolete computers. So get right out there and, you know, buy the latest um, movie editing program. Because you need to do all kinds of things. You need to use Photoshop and paint pictures and edit photos. And you need to use a movie editor. And so what I teach is Isadora because it's so simple. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, this they can learn in two days and then they can start doing stuff and edit and but I can't teach watch out we don't have it I can't teach green hippo we don't have it and the gear is so much more sophisticated that I just say and out there in the world are really high-end servers and such things go and research that <laughs> you know what it's it reminds me I mean I'm I'm studying medicine right now and we don't do a lot of um in the didactic portion where you're learning about the body and everything else, we train, we learn, first of all, how to learn. So because everything changes all the time. Uh, that's the big thing at Mac, the problem-based learning, where you're learning how to learn. But you're also not concentrating on treatment. You're concentrating on physiology and anatomy and the, the pathophysiology because the treatment's going to change. So um, just like in, I mean, I think this is an analogous, like, learn Isadora so you learn what the problems are to have to be solved. Exactly. And how to think about film or, and video and, and, and how, what it can do. But the techniques that you use to actually implement it, you're going to have to figure out because it'll be, be different, different in five years yeah. anyways. Yeah. Right? And also, the nature of the theatrical... I mean, so there are these core things about theatrical moments, you know. Plant the seed so that the denouement is satisfying instead of surprising or too surprising and, um, you know, button the scene, all that stuff, that seems to always be true in live events. Tell the story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. So what I do in class, and it drives them nuts until they actually pull it off, <clears throat> is say, no, now on this, these exercises, you have to tell me a story. And and you have to do it in three dimensions. And, uh, okay, you can bring in actors, but it can't be somebody else's story. They can't talk. You can have a score. Um, but you can't 
use, you know, unless you, I, I don't want them getting bogged down in writing, you know, not that they don't know how, shouldn't know how, but it's just that then they'll spend the whole term writing. It's about using these tools and granted what you're using is stuff that I bought on grant money in 2007. But the whole point is what works in storytelling and what's just techno geekery that we could do without, don't need or didn't work and wouldn't ever. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, and that's essentially what theater comes down to anyway. It's like if you can't tell a story with it. I mean, it's even, I mean, I never... I was um, when I was designing lighting. I, I I followed the script and I was supporting their work. And every once in a while, with more with shows are more collaborative, you're adding more and more elements of lighting to help tell the story. It's but also telling its own story. It's also yeah, exactly. It's also telling its own story. And I I uh, but you couldn't the minute you tried to do something outside of that because it was cool. It didn't fit. And you try it and go, oh, it looks cool, but nah. Oh, the director would go, you know what? I love what that look is, but it doesn't say it's not supporting what I'm doing on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's the same thing with this techno, with, with using a technological solution or doing something that gets cool is not the point. The point is serving the play. Yeah. Right. Or the storyline or the dance movement or mm -hmm. whatever it is. And still, I hate to say it, but still there's a lot of that happens with projection because it's easy and relatively cheap now. You couldn't do it with Pony projectors. My God, you had to have special people. But you can go buy your own little one and stick it on your dance show and throw a bunch of random images up there. And you're not yet going, yeah, okay, that's nice, but I'm now not looking at the dance. <laughs> um, so there is that risk, and that's the other thing that I try and get them to think in terms of is it's live feed right now because all of the sophisticated people are doing live feed, and live feed is actually pretty hard just conceptually. Well, inexpensive because of all the stuff that you have to do to support it. Yeah. I mean, even if you're doing it through a media server, the media servers are expensive, and the material, the amount of stuff you have to have in it to have any choice is really a lot. It's a lot of work. And the big question is, so it's interesting because is it theater, is it film, woo-hoo. Um, and sometimes it works and it'll probably keep working. I'm now really worried about robots because the next, you know, that's that video stuff in the applied science world, that's all 10 years old, who cares? Um, they even did holographs at some point and nobody's using them yet. But because really it's AI where there's any traction for real kind of research stuff is going to be an AI and I'm worried about that. I don't want to replace the stage manager. I don't really want to replace the dancer. It is interesting though, <clears throat> like now that you say that, like an experimental piece of theater would be to sort of set up some algorithms for moving lights and have them decide what they what to support how to support the actor on stage right or why do you need an actor again why yeah. not have Roomba right yes that's true good lord on that happy note um, uh, but that's exciting though and I, what excites me I think just to sort of close it just, just to tie this up in a bow I feel um, even though uh, I understand your frustration with the process and um, why you know you're not actively seeking out any new set design work because of, just because it's the, of the frustrating bits. Uh, 
what I get from you is that there's still a great optimism about the people that you're training. Oh, absolutely. The work that they're oh, they're terrific. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. All of our, all of, it's, an, it's quite interesting to me how none of our students that I can think of have been bad students. They've actually all been really good students and good people. Not all of them have gone into show business when they got out of school. Um, which is fine. But those who have gone into show business are quite talented and the very best of them are leaders. Now, I will say that a lot of them are going into film. Um, and, and in film, it's such a different world, right? The graphics are actually valued and they even pay hourly for them. Amazing. Um, but, and I'm, I shouldn't have communicated frustration because part of it is me saying, well, you know what? You're getting on. You're looking at retirement. You really shouldn't. You should be letting. You should be standing aside a bit. Let young people fight this stuff. Um, but the students are always inspirational, and that's turned out to be the nicest thing about the university gig is um, is meeting them before they're done. Um, they're still young, and so you can see that there's a lot of potential there. You really don't know, and neither do they, what the potential is until four or five years from now when, oh my goodness, they're really good. Wow, that's really scary. <laughs> they're, they're terrific. And that's fun. Uh, well, that's remarkable, and I think optimistic, and it gives me hope that we're producing Oh, me too. Theater me too. I've got future. a couple of kids. One of them is a Syrian refugee, and the other one is from Iran, and I'm telling you. And then one who graduated before, who's about, she's a wee thing about this tall from, um, I don't know, Shanghai maybe? Their lighting design is really good. It's really good. And they're bringing different cultural assumptions into it, and they're just lovely people. I'm going, wow, yeah. You guys get out there, and yeah. you're going to save Canadian theater. Oh, yes. Please save Canadian theater. <laughs> I mean, please, it please. doesn't need saving, but, you know. Make it grow it. and make it into the yeah. new direction. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Okay, well I, think well, I think we'll end on that note. Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Perfect. That was designer Robert Gardner speaking to me from the Frederick Ward Theatre backstage at UBC in Vancouver in December of 2018. Next time, an interview with sound designer and composer Michelle Cutler. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and show the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you figure out how to produce a new play with a week of rehearsal, because we are surely hurtling toward that state these days. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Tut Block. <laughs>